The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Now, conflict uh, continues, as you know, in the Middle East with world leaders are pressing for aid delivery to Gaza. Not sure, don't see any headlines yet as to whether the Rafa crossing has been opened. They're talking about uh, some road repairs needing to be completed before just 20 trucks uh, drop in the ocean uh, can be allowed across that uh, border. We've also had, of course, the flooding in East Cork and the mop-up operation is beginning. And, of course, Ireland being knocked out of the Rugby World Cup. We're all in a bit of a state of despondency over uh, that but will we be supporting England or South Africa in that match anyway my guest today Colin Brophy TD Finnegal TD for Dublin South West Marion Harkin TD Independent TD for Sligo Leitrim Jack Power News reporter of the Irish Times good morning and welcome one and all let's start with the, the, uh, the most pressing news I suppose the dominating global news and that is what's going on in Gaza uh, Marion um, what do you feel is the likely outcome of all of this. Will Israel stay its hand? Look, it's very difficult to know. Um, We are waiting every hour to see are the ground troops moving in, what is happening. And all the time, certainly I am hoping against hope that maybe our friends in the US or elsewhere who have real sway with the Israeli authorities may persuade them to just stop to hold back and what we called for in the doll this week for a humanitarian ceasefire is is bottom line stuff. I mean, when I think about the Gaza Strip, Pat, I think that it's an area a quarter the size of County Leitrim with 65 times its population. So that tells you the numbers of people that are crowded in there, that are absolutely trapped. They're trapped by history, by politics, by poverty. Um, and these people have nowhere to go. And that, you know... Tank- but, but a small number of them, uh, 30,000 in number, they reckon Hamas supporters, managed to peg thousands of rockets into Israel, managed to create what uh, Dr. Daniel Briscoe on this programme a few minutes ago referred to as a holocaust. They perpetrated a holocaust on the people of uh, Israel. Yes, they did. And I, gosh, I'm not minimising that in any way. The terror, the horror for Israeli citizens of what happened. But we also have to understand that while in theory at least Hamas are politically in charge in Gaza, in reality they're not. The people in Gaza have nowhere to go. They're under a terrorist organisation as well and, and they are victims also. So no matter where we look in this, we see victims but somehow we just have to call a halt, call a stop because nobody can bear to think Colm. about what happened if they move. Colm. I agree. If you just bear with me for one second on just something your previous contributor did actually say in that excellent interview you did with him. Um, When it comes to Irish aid, there are incredible protocols and safeguards put in place to ensure that Irish aid does not go astray and is not misused, whether it goes into Gaza or whether it goes into the West Bank. No, but isn't the point is that if you supply supply money and resources, it can uh, free up other money to do the wrong things. He specifically said, you're Irish aid, this is where it has gone. And I would agree with him that in terms of a general thing, that there has been the misuse, complete misuse of money, international money that's gone in and Hamas have... They're a terrorist organisation. They do what terrorist organisations do. They arm themselves at the expense of the people and they use those weapons then to commit atrocities. And uh, it is something that you can see the need to actually tackle. Jack? 
Yeah, I, and I think it's obviously, you know, it's, it's kind of an important point made, but also, you know, as Brian was saying, I was speaking this week to a woman who, she's a single mother, living, born in Gaza, lived in Gaza for 42 years. I think she has a, a 13 and a 15-year-old um, a boy and a girl. And she said, you know, you know, she has no you know, kind of connection to a mass or anything like that. But on one day she returned a few days after the start of the escalation and the conflict just to find her flat, you know, the building that her flat was in destroyed. She was saying to me, I'm, I'm now homeless. I'm, I'm displaced. Where, where do I go? Um, and so she's probably one of the, you know, thousands of, of people in northern Gaza you know, streaming or trying to stream into southern Gaza, um, you know, in in anticipation for, for what's going to happen and in response to and what's already happening. It was kind of striking as I was on the phone to her. You know, you could actually hear the the, the, the bombs of the airstrikes outside. It was, it was very jarring. The, the, the problem for the Israelis, if they want to do what effectively would be like hunting down the Nazis in the wake of right. World War Two, very difficult to... I mean, what they've done is they've raised large areas of uh, Gaza City, but the Hamas people are probably in their tunnels. But it, it's it's almost an impossible task. And I, I was taken by, I, I saw um, uh, General Petraeus, who's been involved in US administrations at various levels for years, talking about the fact that even if you level a place to the ground, if there's a blade of grass left, you have created the next level of the insurgency you've created the next generation of the terrorist. We know from our own experience in our own country that if you don't have a political solution, that hard military action, mm. which is taking place or will take place even even in a worse level, will create the next level yeah. of the Hamas in the children that are there now. But that does not for one minute uh, excuse what Hamas did because what Hamas did, unfortunately, in the slaughter and the butchery of what they did was they also, on the Israeli side, created that push to the extreme where there is no middle ground left. The people who talked about two-state solutions have been all but eradicated or marginalised from political yeah. discussion. But, you know, th- they now- are not stupid people in Hamas, I presume, that there are leaders who think strategically and, and politically... I, they, I, I knew, can, they knew what would happen when what they perpetrated on Saturday week happened. They knew what the response would I be. I would just challenge the political word around Hamas because Hamas is a terrorist organisation which doesn't want a solution. It's actually, it yeah. clearly states that the only solution, as far as it's concerned, is the complete annihilation of the Jewish people and the Israeli state. Now, so when it does things, we can't think of it in terms of a political no, but it, way. but it knew what the response would be. Well, like any vicious terrorist organisation, it knows that if you commit atrocities, there will be a response. And I think, and I would implore, I would take the opportunity, I think, as every other elected person and everybody in public life and every parliament and government should do to implore the Israeli government to take the measured response. By the way, it's just it's interesting that when you go back to the foundation of the Jewish state, and we talked earlier this morning about Menachem Begin and his terrorist organisation, as was labelled by the British at the time. Which they, blew up the hotel, the King David Hotel, that the British Prime Minister was in yesterday. Um, exactly. But they also killed uh, one of the Guinness family. Mm-hmm. Um, who was an administrator of their a military man. Um, but they did it quite deliberately to know that the British reaction would be extreme and this would bring sympathy to their cause, not based on their initial actions, but based on the reaction 
that that yeah. would be brought about from the British, which would horrify the world and bring sympathy to their cause. So there's nothing new in this kind of tactic. The, sorry, ma'am. Well, there, there isn't anything new, but nonetheless, we have to deal with it. And I agree completely with Colm. No matter if you were to level every building to the ground, what you're doing is you're creating the next generation of young people who will support Hamas because what else do they have? There is nothing else for them. So, and this is probably the intent and it's not just Hamas. There are many other actors in this area who who want to see the maelstrom of violence just engulf the whole area. Uh, one of the so other we have to stop. One of the other controversies that uh, waged during the week was whether or not uh, President Michael D. Higgins, Jack, was... Uh, appropriate in saying what he did, uh, you know, going outside the conventional brief of uh, the president and making foreign policy statements. What do you make of it? Yeah, I suppose it's, it's not the first time that, that the president, Michael Higgins, has done it. Um, and I think, to be honest, his his uh, comments were probably nearly mirrored as well by comments by the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar. Um, I think yesterday it was, you know, I think there was definitely across the Irish political system and in civil society, there was certainly a sense that uh, and in other European countries that Ursula von der Leyen, the um, European Commission president, had herself overstepped the mark in in her initial response to, to Israel and kind of the, the unconditional level of support she gave them. Yeah. You know, now, the, the explanation Berlin. given for lighting up the Berlin building in the colours of Israel was that they did the same for Ukraine when Ukraine was invaded. They did the same in France when the terrorist attacks uh, happened. They they lit up the buildings in the French colours, that this was a convention. Uh, her statements obviously were maybe not nuanced enough. Um, the president, column. I mean, does he have the right to go on about these things shooting from the hip? Just a quick one on the lighting up um, of the building. Um, I think it's an amazing discussion because I can't think of another single country in the world that if over a thousand people were killed in a terrorist atrocity, that that question would even have been raised. So I would just ask the people. So you think there's an anti-Israeli bias in that Well, I think it's it's amazing because I can't think of another country. And if somebody can, I'd like them to to tell me because I can't think of another country if over a thousand people were slaughtered in a horrific terrorist attack that that question would be raised. The president, ironically, it's one of those catch-22s in relation to his comments because I totally agree with his comment. I think that the president of the commission did go, um, you know, in a way too far in um, her, her statement because she didn't bring that balance, which everybody in this country and the president and the Taoiseach, I think, particularly reflected that in their comments. And so has the Taunashta, which is the balance that we always strike to build from our own collective experience, that there must be a recognition of the right for self-defence to Israel, but it must be done in the context of observing international law. You cannot go outside that. And to go outside that puts your country in an offside position. Mm. And you don't want to do that because you you have the right to defend yourself, but not the right to to break the law. Well, I think it's not so much whether you agree with what the president said or not. I think a lot of people do. The question is, should he have said it? And that's a very different question. And I'm not sure about that. And that's the truth. I mean, you obviously have to look at the legalities of it. I would question it. I absolutely agree with him. I was furious with von der Leyen and with the Hungarian commissioner, you know, shooting from the hip straight out, wanting to be seen, to be important, to be playing a role. They'd be far better off to stop and to be considered and be measured um, because it does not help. 
Now, I hear what Colm said. Is there another country in the world uh, where we'd even question about lighting up the Berlemont or anywhere else in their flags, colours, if it happened? And you're right. But in everything, there's context. And that's what we're looking at here. I want to move on from that global... crisis to the local crisis in in East Cork and in in Middleton. Uh, Jack, it seems almost impossible that people will ever get insurance there again against flooding. And it also seems very likely that this kind of uh, flooding, excessive rainfall is going to be a pattern of our future. Yeah. And so the the kind of scheme that stood up in in kind of cases like this will will kind of be rolled out or approved by Cabinet, I think, to provide kind of financial support. But, you know, that's kind of a cold comfort to people who are, you know, literally trying to to bail the water out of their their sitting rooms or have had their their shops and their businesses destroyed, you know. Um, You know, and and it's the reality that it probably won't be the last time, you know, the the way in terms of the climate is changing and stuff like that. I think we'll see more and more of these, you know, kind of severe kind of flooding events as you said, people. I mean, in some parts of the world, they're insurance. talking about they will have to abandon uh, certain low-lying places. Uh, no one's talking about that in in terms of Middleton. They're talking about flood mitigation measures. And uh, the minister for the OPW, Patrick O'Donovan, on with us this morning, decrying the fact that it takes ages to get any planning through. Yeah, and we've we've seen it before. You know, you know, the the Clontarf seawall is, is a well-known one. You know, other ones along, I think, Cork Keys and stuff like that. That you know. This, this infrastructure is, you know, beset with, with delays, you know, digit, digital review challenges um, and opposition in, in some cases from locals that, you know, it, it's been a challenge to kind of push this stuff through. But, you know, scenes like we Col- saw yesterday. Colin, the whole business of defining these measures as strategic infrastructural measures, uh, which they are for the local people, um, would that accelerate the process of planning? Well, I think we do need to look at how we can accelerate the process of planning because I think it is absolutely horrific for people to think who are at risk of flooding um, that they could be years and years away from a decision. Now, some of the changes that are happening in terms of planning, in terms of legislation at the moment, I think will ease that because uh, as part of the legislative change, they are building in guaranteed timelines for when decisions have to be made. Um, but I do think, you know, we have to look at a situation where you have the ability to, through the, and, and, and it should be an ability for people to appeal, obviously, and make their views heard. But that has to be done in a speedy and quick way so as the towns are not left exposed like Martin. Right. Look, I absolutely agree with that. The delays in planning timelines will certainly be a big help. We're all aware of it. I go back to the time that was really bad flooding in East Galway and Ballinasloe. I was there many times. They finally got their flood defences in place and it made a difference. I, I can still remember going into those shops and those businesses and people were beyond devastated and you know where do they go I can actually still remember going into a woman's house on the shores of the Shannon um, just uh, and the water lapping in the field beside her and she told me twice she had her house done up and she said if it happens the third time I'll walk out the door and I'll throw the keys in the letterbox and that's the reality for people so what can we do we can make sure that our planning systems operate in an efficient and effective way and we get the job done yeah. and sec- but, but there are yeah. other plans uh, planning issues that pre precede flooding in a lot of cases one of the texts are saying why were all the newish houses that flooded built on flooding planes the issue goes back to bad planning in the first place well, yes. it, it does go back to bad planning, but 
But realistically, at this point, if there's houses built and people are living in them, um, the obligation is there to to do everything we can to mitigate the potential of flooding. No, but I mean, um, we, we so have the state we, paying up for MICA, absolutely. which was nothing really to do with the state. They said they should have tested the stuff and all the rest. But really, um, people built houses with bad materials and the state is carrying the, the, the can. So in this place where the state gives planning permission for mm-hmm. stuff to be built on flooding plains... There is the similar mica case to be made. Well, why not ask the people to move, demolish the houses because they're in the wrong place and pay them accordingly? Look, what I'd like to see is the flood relief schemes rather than going down that which could take an awful long time. I'd just like to see the the flood relief schemes go be put in place and to make sure that the planning system enables them to happen Mm. quickly. Another text, uh, there should be some sort of alarm system that warns people of an imminent flood. That way, some stock and equipment might have been saved in, in Middleton. I'm not sure that we have that capacity, you know, sirens going off, you've got flooding coming. But the the yellow, amber and red warnings. Jack, they said they only got an amber and so they continued to eat and cut hair. Yeah, I think this is actually something that, that Matt Aaron said the other day that they'd kind of be possibly taking another look at the frequency, for example, of which they issue yellow weather warnings because there could definitely be a sense of fatigue that, you know, people say... Mm-hmm. You know, oh, it's another weather warning, you know, the media are reporting it, etc. But I'm sure it'll be grand. It was grand the last three times. Um, and, you know, you know, weather forecasting is an imprecise art. You know, the difference between an orange and a red, you know, if they issue a red weather warning and then it's only a bit of rain and a, yeah. a bit of bluster, then people will say, well, the next time yeah, there's a red there, warning, there a, I'll... There's a generation there who take their phone out, they go to a, a weather app, it could be Metair and it could be another app, and the, it says rain at three o'clock. And as the rain doesn't arrive, they say, this is insane. The app is wrong. I mean, how they don't understand that weather is variable it's and a, you should science. when it's the a, rain doesn't arrive, yeah. thank your lucky stars. Absolutely. Well, yeah, and it's an impossible situation that Met Aaron find themselves caught in because I would agree with what we've just been saying there in terms of if you if you run the risk of, and this is the thing you have to be very careful, that you start making red announcements as frequently as the yellows have been popping yeah. up in recent times, then eventually people start paying less and less attention to them. Um, so, and getting that balance right is not a science. It's a bit of an art linked to a science. Mary? But in certain areas like Middleton and other areas that we know are prone to flooding, perhaps Met Aaron could look at a, a more localised uh, warning system. I'm not sure if we have the technology for that, but maybe that's something we should look at because as you say, it's not just about what do we do afterwards. It's can we do anything yeah. beforehand to prevent maybe some of the worst damage? Well, that well might if, if you could have these mitigation measures engineered and built and, and so on, that'd be one thing. But even if you have a, a red warning and you put up your sandbags and then no water arrives, my attitude be, well, thank God. Yes, yeah. rather that, than you know, it didn't angry. happen. Absolutely. It could have happened, it didn't happen. Yeah. So even though it's a bit of hard work taking the sandbags away, you know, mm-hmm. it's better to be safe. Than well, sorry. I spend a lot of time in in, in the centre of Cork, and uh, the wife's from Cork. In case people are wondering why, and you'll see businesses there when they have built-in barriers. They've actually permanent drop barriers that they can put in place that stop the potential for flooding, and they're more than happy to put them in place and say that thank you when it doesn't happen, then take the yeah. risk of it happening. Marion, yes, South Africa or England. <laughs> Do you know something? I was so flat, and that's the only word I can use after Ireland's defeat, that I couldn't care less. There's a touch of that has set in. Oh, the promise just, was so great. I, I'm not even sure I can watch it. Um, I, I won't. I won't even watch it. I might watch the final 
And look, let the best team win. At some level, I wouldn't mind seeing New Zealand winning because they maybe are the best team and they beat us and there's some sense then that, you know, oh, I can't even, I don't want to remember what happened. That's the truth. <laughs> Colm, uh, it's an easy choice for South Africa because God remember, we're gutted at the moment, but I guarantee you if South Africa win the World Cup, all anyone in Ireland will say in about three weeks' time is, and you know, of course, we beat them. <laughs> so that's that's all we'll say. You know, of course, we beat them. <laughs> Jack, I think, yeah, after the, the absolute heartbreak of Ireland losing that, I might find some some small degree of comfort in England getting absolutely trounced. <laughs> I think that's the, the, the inner feeling of many people. Uh, anyway, look, that's all we have time for. My thanks to Colin Brophy, TD, Finnegal TD for Dublin Southwest, Marion Harkin, Independent D for Sligo, Leitrim and Jack Barr, news reporter with the Irish Times. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9am on News Talk.